So like Paul and Jenny have now said, we are in the book of Jonah. This is our second week in the book of Jonah. You can start heading that direction if you want to. Um, as I was thinking about this, I thought, um, even if you're not a Christian, typically this is a story that, or a narrative that you know. You typically know the David and Goliath story with the little boy with the stone and the big dude and Jonah and the fish. You typically know those two. And I think that's great. I also think that there's actually a danger to familiarity. We just kind of get used to it. And so we start brushing over some really important details in stories like Jonah. For example, what actually happened in the belly of that fish? What happened in Jonah's heart? Some of you might say, I have no idea. I've never, never read the story. And others of you might say, I think I know what happened with Jonah and his heart. And I would ask this morning, do you? I think the answer that I'll give to that question might actually surprise some of you this morning. I, I think there might be a little bit more than what initially meets the eye at first glance with this passage. So again, we are going to be in Jonah. We went through chapter 1 last week. We are going to kick it off in chapter 2. We'll do chapters 2 and 3 this morning. Um, but I, I just want to give us a little bit of recap before we dive in. If you weren't here last week or maybe not familiar with the story, God told Jonah to go to the wicked city of Nineveh, and he does the opposite. He literally flees in the opposite direction, plays this game of hide-and-go-seek with God, which good luck with that. God obviously knows where he's at, sends a storm. The sailors don't know what to do, and Jonah says, just throw me in the water. And so they do. They throw him in the water. And then verse 17 of chapter 1 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Just for clarity, um, this is not a fable or a mythical legend. This is a historical narrative of something that happened. Actually, Jesus affirms this in the New Testament. And some of you might say, really, though? A guy getting swallowed by a, a whale? Does that happen? It actually does happen. Paul and I spent probably too much time. There's like all sorts of stories of guys getting swallowed by whales, I guess. There's some guy in Jimmy Kimmel. I would love to talk about it for a long time. We've got to teach the Bible. But I do actually want to, t I want to talk about this fish, though, because a question that can get asked, actually, Casey asked the question the other night when we were reading this story to, to Asher and, and Winnie Hunting. She goes, well, was it a fish or was it a whale? What do you think? What does the Bible say? Well, the Hebrew word there, it's actually just the word for aquatic beast. So <laughs> there you go. So my answer, if you go, Jordan, is it a fish or is it a whale? My answer would be, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Why? Because the fish is not the main character of this story. I'll actually take that a step further. Jonah is not the main character of this story. It's, right? God is the main character of this story. The, the fish is only mentioned two times in this whole narrative, 117 and 210. Both times it says God appointed the fish and then God commanded the fish. We are seeing God sovereignly in control throughout this whole situation, including what the fish does. I will say this, though. Fish isn't main character, but he is important. Because if it wasn't for the fish, Jonah would be dead today in the bottom of, a, of the Mediterranean Sea. You see, back then, if you got thrown overboard into the Mediterranean Sea, you didn't have near-death experiences, you just had death experiences. That's what happened back then. And so, as God graciously sends this fish, it's a sign of God's grace and compassion, the fact that Jonah is still alive, which I go, that is God's grace. If it was me, at this point in the story, I probably would have struck Jonah dead and picked somebody else. 
I just hit the reset button. But God keeps going with Jonah, and he shows him his patience and mercy. The purpose of this book, in a lot of ways, is to show God's compassion and mercy. And really, it's the purpose of the whole Bible, to show us God's character. And I feel like I need to say some of these things as we head into the narrative this morning, because I, I think actually a lot of times our primary influence in stories like Jonah can be kids' books. Which kids' books are great. Don't get me wrong. We were reading a kids' book the other night. We were reading Jesus' Storybook Bible. We just cracked into Kevin DeYoung's Biggest Story. There's some great ones out there. Um, but kids' books can at times paint with broad strokes and, and skip over or miss some pretty important details or maybe give some wrong pictures in our mind. So I'll give you an example. I want you to picture right now what it looked like for Jonah to be in the belly of that fish. Just picture in your mind. Got it? All right, does it look something like this? There is Jonah. I mean, the guy couldn't be more happy. He is, he's like, he's like he's on the Shamu Express at SeaWorld. Just woohoo, you know? That's, that's that children's book, uh, Jonah. Um, I like that one. I like this next one actually a lot more. Look at this. How, how convenient... How convenient it was that right before the whale swallowed Jonah, he also happened to swallow a desk, a chair, a pen, and a quill, and all the necessary components for a small fire. It's just <laughs> so convenient and helpful that the whale did that. No, like this, that's not what happened in the belly of the whale, right? Because I promise you that's not what a, a whale or a fish's stomach looks like. What would, it, what would the picture actually look like for Jonah? He'd probably be in the fetal position, it'd be slimy, it would smell horrible. He would literally just be trying to survive. There would be, I don't know how it all worked, but stomach acids and him trying to breathe. But I know that if God can save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, from a, a fiery furnace in a different Old Testament narrative, he can, he can certainly keep Jonah alive in the belly of a fish. What I am saying, though, is that this wasn't a vacation for Jonah. It's not like Jonah went on a three-day spiritual retreat and chose the belly of a fish. No, he is in desperation here. He knows he's disobeyed God, and he's just trying to stay alive in the belly of this beast. And it's in the belly that Jonah cries out to God. So let's read our text this morning, or at least the first half. Jonah 2, verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help, and from deep inside Sheol, you heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the sea, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then in verse 10, then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah on a dry land. Now, we know that verse 10 happens in this narrative. When Jonah is making this prayer, I don't think he knew that he was about to get vomited. He didn't know what was going to happen. He was in a very dark, serious situation 
And if he knew, if God doesn't act, his life is over. He was totally dependent on the goodness and grace of his God. So from that spot, Jonah starts to pray. And he, he's verbalizing. You can see the language here. It's almost poetic in nature. He's verbalizing what it's like to physically, emotionally, or spiritually drown. He is in a clear sense of anguish or desperation. He's alive, but he feels like he's dead. Jonah ultimately was brought to the end of himself, and he's realizing that God is all that he has. But here's the weird thing in the midst of all of this. I would say this moment is actually the highlight of Jonah throughout the whole narrative. It's in this spot of desperation that in a lot of ways is his best moment. He's calling, to the God, calling out to God for the first time. He's remembering him. He's asking for help. He's thanking the Lord for saving him. He's, it seems like in verse 9, promising to obey him again. There is some good stuff in this prayer. But if I can be a little picky, I think there's actually some stuff lacking in here. Jonah never actually says he's sorry, which is basic kids 101 stuff, right? If you've done something wrong, you say, I'm sorry, I screwed up. There's not really any of that. And on top of that, He's not praying outwardly. He's not praying about the sailors that just threw him overboard. What's their situation? The Ninevites, who he's still called to go to them. He, there's kind of this pattern we see about Jonah being concerned of himself. But again, the story is not primarily about Jonah. It's about God. So what do we learn about God and his character? What do we learn about his compassion in this prayer? I think actually the whole prayer is summarized in verse 2. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. There's this Jonah called for help and Jesus answered type language. Verse 6, I sank, but you raised me from the pit. And then in verse 9, he proclaims salvation belongs to the Lord. In a lot of ways, the climax of this prayer. And actually, in a lot of ways, the literary midpoint and theological foundation for this whole book. So verse 9 is really important. So let's camp out here a little bit, talk about this. Again, Jonah is declaring salvation is from the Lord, yet he's not been delivered yet. So what is going on? Why? Why is he saying this? Because I believe Jonah knows deep down it is God alone who saves Jonah had done nothing to deserve being rescued, but God still saves him. The main thrust of the book of Jonah in the Bible itself is we cannot save ourselves. We need God to save us. It's, it's the whole point. And, and I think really as we get into the teeth of this text and in the whole narrative of Jonah, I think we're going to have the temptation at times to say things like, I can't believe Jonah did that. And I can't believe Jonah did that or had a heart like that. But we have to remember that we are way more like Jonah than we would ever want to admit. Jonah disobeyed, he sinned, found himself in a tough spot, and had no power or ability to save himself. If you stop and think about it, that's us. <laughs> That is every single one of us. We have disobeyed, we have rebelled and sinned against a holy God. We deserve nothing but condemnation and we are not capable of saving ourselves. But God saved us at an infinite cost to himself by sending his son, Jesus Christ. 
We're going to see a lot of parallels between Jonah and Jesus throughout this narrative. Jonah was disobedient and involuntarily, swal- involuntarily swallowed by a whale for three days, which led to his salvation. Jesus Christ, perfectly obedient and voluntarily swallowed up by death for three days for the purpose of our salvation. Jesus is the greater Jonah. He is our savior. We are disobedient people and we need saving. We deserve to drown in the deep waters of our sin, but God plucks us out of death and he gives us life. It's his grace, it's his compassion, it's his mercy, which should lead us to be grateful, to be thankful, like Jonah is in verse nine. He is thankful because he deserved death, but God rescued him in his mercy. Now, here's an interesting question, though. So you you get through the whole prayer, and this was the question I kept asking myself as I was studying out this text. Was Jonah truly repentant in the belly of that fish? What do you think? This was the question I asked our elders on Wednesday morning. Was Was Jonah actually repentant? All right, so to answer that question, we need to define some terms here. I think this would be helpful. Uh, Repent is kind of a fancy church word. Paul started to talk about it last week. Uh, I want to slow down this morning and dive a little bit deeper. A simple definition of repent or repentance is changing the way you think. It is seeing the seriousness of your sin, how destructive it is between you and God and you and others, and it's hating your sin. Being repulsed by your sin and then changing the way you think, knowing that your actions will follow. That's repentance. So, I, want to give you, I think it would be helpful to give you actually a, another definition. Remorse. What is remorse? I, looked, I Google searched this one. Remorse is a deep regret or guilt for a wrong committed. You feel bad for something you did wrong. That's remorse. So, is there a difference between repentance and and remorse. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can do something wrong, feel bad about it, but then never change the way you think. So, all that being said, in my mind, I have three categories of how we can respond to our sin in our life based on that repentance remorse. The first one's pretty simple. No repentance and no remorse. Neither. So we have uh, a dog uh, his name is Coda. I've got a picture of Coda. Um, there he is next to Asher, all snuggled up. I know, aw, he is a cute dog. And um, you go, well, is he eating the scraps off of the, you know, absolutely, he is. He, I know this, that, that's kind of a controversial thing in the pet world, like should you give your dog food scraps or not? Um, we do. That, I'm sorry, well, that's what we do. I might as well just let you know now where we land on epidurals, co-sleeping, and cloth diapers. Just get it all out. And... Uh, <laughs> Get all the moms a little bit mad at me this morning. Uh, we feed our dog some breadcrumbs. He loves it. But he also, the annoying thing that can happen from this is he can get to, like, being a bit of a beggar. So check out this next picture. And that's where I'm like, oh, okay, that's a little much, you know. And, but he loves, he loves the food. He, he wants that mac and cheese. Um, he's also a smart dog. And this is frustrating. He knows that the best time to strike is right after we finish eating Asher and we take him to like his bedroom or bath time or whatever. And our dog's range uh, is wildly impressive. And this past week we went to give Asher bath time or something and I came back and this is what I saw. Just (laughs) 
I mean, so happy. He got all the food, and I, I mean, in the moment, I'm upset. I'm like, no, Coda, no, hey, hey, hey. You know, I'm grabbing him and by the collar, putting him in the kennel. And, and Casey was actually around when this whole thing kind of unfolded. She was sitting in the living room, and I put him in his kennel. I shut the kennel, and I'm just looking at him, and he lays down, and he's looking at me. And the words that came out of my mouth were, he's not even remorseful. And what I mean by that is not only is he not going to change, he'll totally do that again. But he's sitting in his kennel, and he doesn't even feel bad about it. Actually, I believe if my dog could speak, in that moment, he would have spoken two words. He would have looked at me and gone, worth it. You know? <laughs> like, bummed he's in the kennel, but he's like, oh, it's so worth it. I will, you'll see me again tomorrow. So we, like, we can laugh when it's a dog, and it's, it's things like, like not remorseful or repentant. But how many of us actually kind of do this with our sin? Whether it's, you know, greed or lust in our heart, the angry outbursts with our family, the lies, cutting corners to get ahead in life, pride, self-glorification. We might be bummed about some of the consequences or if we get caught, but, but there's no change. And we actually, if we're being honest, don't actually even feel bad. And deep down, if we think about the consequences and the actions, we would still maybe say, worth it. And I'll just state the obvious. That is a wildly dangerous place to be. You are heading down a path of destruction. My prayer for you, my hope for you, is that as we go through the book of Jonah, that this would be kind of like a wake-up call that the Holy Spirit would actually break your heart over your sin. Not only remorseful, but repentant. So that's the first one, no remorse, no repentance. Let's go to the next one. Remorseful, but not repentant. Maybe that's the second way we can respond to our sin. Maybe you've seen this in small group uh, that you've been in. Like somebody comes in and they share some kind of sin that's going on in their life. And you're, you're like, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for being authentic. And then they come back the next week and then they share the same thing. You go, all right, well, keep working on it, you know. And you just, you, you start like week after week goes by and you realize it's been months and you go, has anything actually changed? It seems you feel bad about your sin, but there's, it doesn't seem like you're doing anything about it. In other words, you're remorseful, but you're not repentant. I remember this happened to me one time. We were in an elders and wives connection group and, and uh, we were talking about marriage or life or something, ways we could grow and, but my answer was, you know, I need to grow in pursuing my wife. And, you know, it seems like we're shoulder to shoulder on a lot of things, but we're not like eyeball to eyeball. Like I'm not loving her well and these different things. And I got done sharing and Jake, one of the elders in a very loving, tactful way was <laughs> said, uh, didn't you share that last time we did this? <laughs> and he said it and it was just like a, you know, just a weight of conviction. I, I, told, I totally shared that last time, felt bad about it, but there was no discernible change in my life. Do you have that example in mind? Or maybe that person is you. A sin that you keep confessing over and over, but there's no discernible change in your life. Now, Christian, I'm not saying we have to be perfect, but I do think if we have a soft view of God's holiness, it leads you to not actually hating your sin and taking it seriously, doing something about it. It's a dangerous path. So that's remorse with no repentance. So what is true repentance? True repentance. I am going to steal this from a book that I found to be really helpful called Gospel-Centered Life by Bob Thune. He talks about remorse and repentance in a helpful way. So uh, the first category he gives kind of with 
in this true repentance is remorse and resolution. Remorse and resolution. Remorse is, this is the person that says, I can't believe I did that. I mean, that's not, real, that's not what I'm really like. I can't believe that actually happened to me, that I actually did that. And then resolution says, I promise I'll do better next time. Like, I'll, I'll pull up my bootstraps and I'll do it. So the mindset here, again, remorse, we feel bad and we just think, oh, well, just, I'll just fix my problem on my own. You know, I got this. So that's remorse and resolution. Contrast that with realize and repent. Realize, I did that. I totally did that. Because that's actually who I am. That's what I'm really like. And then repent, Lord, forgive me. You're my only hope. You're my only hope. The mindset here is we're not being surprised by our sin. Because we go, I know who I am. I'm a sinner saved by grace. We're not surprised by it, so we're honest about it, and we own it. And then, stop, and then we stop trying to just, like, fix ourselves, and instead we just run to King Jesus, knowing he's our only hope. That's repentance. So as I was thinking about this, you know, I did a handful of years in college ministry. And um, I had a very, I have a very vivid example in my mind. Within the same year, two students had almost the exact same sin. It was a sin of immorality, and their responses to it were just so starkly different. I remember student number one uh, came and brought the kind of the leadership, the leaders in his life into a room, and he just, he, he brought out this, I think it was a piece of paper or maybe on his iPad or something, and he just kind of read this apology to us, which in one sense I was like grateful for. He was conf- I couldn't remember if he got caught or if he was confessing, but he was sharing it. But then the more I reflected on it, I thought, Phew, that felt pretty cold and calculated. As he's talking, I'm like, I don't even know. I don't think you're actually broken about your sin. Oh, I'm not sure. So I was student number one. Student number two, same, basically the same sin, coming to me completely undone by his sin, hating his sin. He was a wrestler. He was in, I mean, basically in tears. I don't know if you've seen a wrestler cry. It's a unique thing. You're like, oh, wow, all right. And, but I didn't need to beat him over the head of the Bible. <laughs> he hated his sin more than anyone else, and he was ready to change. He was ready to change. I would say student number one, I think there was, I think there was some remorse. I think there was some, some of that in there, but I don't think he was actually repentant. Student number two, I think, was actually showing true repentance. Now, you might hear that and say, well, hold on a minute, though, Jordan. God knows the heart. We don't know the heart. So how can you actually, like, say repentant or not? Like, we're on the outside looking in. How do we know? Very simple. Just watch it play out. Just watch it play out. If they've genuinely changed, actions will follow. For example, I... You know, let's say Casey tells me over and over, hey, babe, I need you to mow our lawn. I need you to mow our lawn. I need you to mow our lawn. And I'm like, all right, all right. But I'm lazy. I'm apathetic. I'm like, I'm just not, I don't want to. I don't do it, you know. And so this is hypothetical. I'm <clears throat> but, but if she's saying this over and over, weeks go by, how will Casey know whether or not I've actually been repentant and changed the way I think? How will she know? She'll drive home and she'll see a lawn mowed. That's, that's how she'll know. This is actually really convicting. I'm looking at Dan and Tess. They're our next door neighbors. I actually do need to mow our lawn <laughs> really soon. So um, I'll do that. I'll repent. Um, 
So take that principle and then just, I just applied it to these two students. I, that, the student number one actually, this is just a bummer. It, he actually just kind of kept going down that path. Cold, towards sin, calculated. And uh, as far as I know today, actually he's not, um, I, don't think, I don't think he's following Jesus anymore. And it just grieves my heart. And I'm not saying that that's going to happen every time that we're just remorseful and not repentant, but that was the path he was down. The other student, student number two, showed a pattern of true repentance and actually still is passionately following Jesus to this day. So is there a difference between remorse and repentance? You better believe it. What are the things in your life right now that you might feel bad about? Like there's remorse, but there's no true change. There's no repentance. Let me go back to my question about Jonah. Was Jonah truly repentant or not? I think this is, might be the surprising answer to some of you. I think Jonah is remorseful. I don't think he was truly repentant. I think there's elements of repentance kind of within, woven within the prayer, um, but I don't think what we're seeing here is true repentance. And again, you might go, who, who, how, why? How, how do you get there? And I would say the same answer, because we can just watch it play out. I'm actually, I think if Jonah... There's four chapters in Jonah. If you stopped at chapter three, I think, Paul and I were talking about this, I think you could convince me that he was truly repentant. I think I could get there. But because we have chapter four, I go the other way. And you go, why? What happens in chapter four? And I would say, come back next week. Josiah is going to teach chapter four. It's going to be incredible. Uh, (laughs) I'm telling you, it's hard not to teach chapter four. It's like holding in a sneeze. I was telling our elders that. You know, that being said, Like, we're not going to get to four today, but I would say even in chapter three, we start seeing some elements unravel and and like things going on in Jonah's life. It's like, I think we get some clues. So let's go to chapter three. Jonah chapter three. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh by the order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then verse 10 says, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with and he did not do it. Okay, verse two, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, is almost identical to chapter one, verse two. It's the exact same thing. What's the difference? Jonah actually obeyed. Again, this is God's mercy. Not only that Jonah is still alive, but that God chose to still use Jonah, that he brought him out of the fish, repurposed him, and sent him back out on the same mission. 
So Jonah hits Nineveh, three days walk. I don't know if that's, uh, people don't know if that's like surrounding areas or walking throughout the entire city. But he, but he gets like a day in. He doesn't go very far, it doesn't seem like. And he gives kind of a lame sermon. Five Hebrew words. There's a lot, did you catch that? There's a lot, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. There's just a lot missing in that message. You know, who God is, what they did wrong, how they should respond. <laughs> There's none of that. It's not the best effort from Jonah. It'd be like me asking Asher to pick up toy, like his toy room and him grabbing one toy, throwing it in the general direction of his bucket and then just walking away. You know, I go, ah, it's not the best effort by Jonah, but what is Nineveh's response to the message? They repented. Not just remorseful, they repented. It says they turned from their evil, cried out to God. That is true repentance language. They heard the message, they were brokenhearted, sackcloth, fasting, those were outward um, expressions of being brokenhearted. They owned their sin and then they looked to God as their only hope. And this wasn't just spotty personal repentance. This was corporate repentance across the whole city. Like Paul said last week, the size of about Jacksonville, like everyone from the greatest to the least repented. And what is God's response to their repentance? Verse 10, he relents. Which shows me again that this actually is true repentance. Because if anyone would have known the true heart of the Ninevites, it would have been God. And I don't think he would have relented if it was just remorse. No, I think this is true repentance that's going on in the Ninevites. Which is wildly ironic, right? You have a disobedient prophet who walks into this town with a half-hearted, lame message, that guy, and then you have over here a wicked, evil people who are showing textbook true repentance. The, the literary genre that people would often call Jonah is satire. Everything is backwards. Everything is upside down. It's not how it should be. How does Jonah respond to God's compassion towards Nineveh in, in the first chapter to, to go and preach the message? He runs the opposite direction. How does Nineveh respond to God's compassion towards them through Jonah's message, they repent. And, and Paul talked about this last week. It's worth highlighting again. This would have been ridiculous that the wicked people of Nineveh, who the kind of things they did, we can't say from the front of the stage, it was those people that God showed his mercy towards. The most unlikely of people. If you were an Israelite in that day, you would have thought, the Ninevites, those people, too far gone. There's no way God will save them, and he totally does. Which makes me want to ask the question this morning, who's that person in your life who feels too far gone? Anyone that you think, I don't think that person will, I don't think they'll ever get saved. Like Jesus, they're just never going to surrender to him. Your faith runs dry, you stop praying, and you stop talking about Jesus. I actually, as I was studying out this passage, I actually had three names come to mind. Um, they're all in this room. I'll share all that. No, I'm kidding. Um, three, na- I'm kidding. I had, but I had three, <laughs> I had three people that came to mind that if I'm being honest, I just don't think it's ever going to happen. I don't think it's ever going to, like I spent time thinking about those people getting in the tank, getting baptized spending time with Jesus in the word and through prayer, and I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Now, I say that, and you might think right now, oh, well, now you've studied out Jonah 2 and 3, you're probably saying, but now I, now I believe. Now I believe. And I would say, 
I'm still struggling. I'm still struggling. My theology believes God can do anything. My faith when it comes to these three people is just going, ah, I still can't see it fully yet. Jonah is challenging me. That's the journey I'm on. But it's not just the book of Jonah that's challenging me. It's the entirety of scripture. I started thinking about the criminal next to Jesus on that cross. Christian, we know that Jesus was innocent as he went to that cross. But what about the two guys next to him? They were actually guilty. They deserved to be there. Did they lie, cheat, steal? I don't know. Um, We don't know. But they were there and they deserved it. And do you remember what the wicked criminal next to Jesus said? I'll actually read it. It's in Luke 23. That's what it says. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him, Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other one answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God. Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly. We're guilty because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did owning his sin, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to the criminal, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. That should blow our minds, should blow our minds. That guy deserved to be on a cross. And in a moment, says, Jesus, remember me. Essentially owns his sin, looks to Jesus as his only hope, and he is saved, brought from death to life, enters paradise with Jesus. This reminds me of the simplicity and the power of our Savior. Simplicity of repentance in the gospel and the power of our Savior. I remember hearing Alistair Begg talk about this criminal and just imagining what was it like when that guy showed up to the gates of heaven? Can you imagine that? He, he shows up. And an angel approaches him, and the angel says, uh, what are you doing here? And the criminal goes, I don't know. And the angel says, I, let me go get my supervisor. And, you know, he gets a supervisor angel, and the supervisor angel looks at him and goes, um, all right, are you clear on the doctrine of justification, sanctification, and glorification? And the criminal looks at him and goes, I haven't heard any of those words, you know. Um, and he goes, the angel says, all right, well, have you been baptized? Uh, been in Bible study? Been a church member? <laughs> and the guy goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Keeps asking questions. And finally, the angel asks, then on what basis are you here? And the criminal looks at him and says this, because the man on the middle cross said I can come. He said I can come. That is the power, beauty, and simplicity of the gospel. Christian, when we get to heaven, we're going to see that criminal. Isn't that crazy? When we get to heaven, Jonah makes me believe we're going to see some Ninevites. Isn't that crazy? God's grace and compassion reaches the worst of sinners. And I think some of you might need to hear this this morning because you believe you are the worst of sinners. You're surprised you weren't struck by lightning just walking in the door. Maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe some of you are waiting for God to give you a sign. Maybe you're going, well, until he, you know, maybe literally swallows me by a fish or proverbially, like, until he, God gives me a sign, until then, I'm not, I'm not going to repent. And if, if that's you, I just want to be so brutally clear this morning. We have a bloody cross and an empty tomb. There's your sign. <laughs> repent. Turn to Jesus as your only hope. 
And for you, Christian, what's your call, your takeaway from Jonah and the Ninevites? Should you be focusing on repenting yourself or should you be focusing on calling others to repent? Yes. <laughs> yes. Walk in daily repentance and then as we walk, call others to repent. Here's my big idea for this whole morning. God desires a repentant people who call others to repent. It's kind of a churchy big idea, but we spend a lot of time talking about repentance. God desires a repentant people, daily repentance, who are calling others to repent. Remember, Christian, that repentance is not a one-time thing that happened when you got saved. It's the thing that you do every day. You wake up, you remember that God is holy, that you are sinful, and then you respond accordingly. <laughs> we are the first to confess our sin, the first to do something about it. We are called to transform our minds by the power of the Spirit, to change it, to make it more like Christ. All throughout the day, then we go to bed, and then the next morning we wake up and just do it all over again. That's the Christian life. So walk in daily repentance. But as we repent, we also need to call others to repent. Jonah needed to understand that this message, this message from God was not just from Israel. It was for everyone, even the worst of the worst, even those people over there and we need to be reminded that the message of the cross isn't just for us in here, it's for everyone out there. And so our call, Christian, is to open our mouths, to share the message. Jonah is amazing to me. He didn't have a great heart. He walked like barely halfway into the city, spoke five words, and everyone repented, a million people. It's encouraging because it's probably the shortest, worst evangelistic sermon ever, but everyone's like, I'm in, I'm, I'll repent, <laughs> you know? I've heard it said that Jonah was a bad preacher and everyone repented. Jeremiah was a good preacher, nobody repented. Jesus was the perfect preacher, some repented. What's that tell us? It tells us we can't put God in a box. Be ready for anything. But it also tells us it's not about the giftedness or even the heart of the messenger, it's about the message. Which reminds us that our call is to open our mouths, share the gospel, see what God is gonna do, even to the most unlikely of people. Christian, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So let us be a repentant people who call others to repent. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are so good and so kind to us. We are so grateful that while we were dead, in our sins and trespasses, no ability or power to save ourselves, much like Jonah in that fish, that you saved us. It's the message of the Bible that we are sinful, broken, no ability to save ourselves, but God, you come to save us even in our sins. So we thank you for the message, the simplicity, and the power of the good news of your message, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to transition now uh, into a time of communion. And as we do, I just want to spend a little time showing some parallels and maybe some contrast between Jonah and Jesus. You see, Jonah runs away from God in chapter one. All throughout the gospels, we see Jesus running towards God. Jonah was put in a desperate place because of reluctant disobedience towards God. And Jesus was put on a cross because of joyful obedience to his father. Jonah was alone in a fish while Jesus was alone on a cross, completely abandoned by his disciples and his father. 
Jonah cried out in the belly of a fish and Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jonah was delivered from a watery grave and we know that Jesus emerged victorious from his earthly grave. And because Jesus is victorious from his grave, we have freedom to own our sin, to bring it to our Savior, knowing he is faithful to forgive us of all our sins. So my question this morning is very simple. Is there any sin that you need to confess, own, and repent of? Maybe first, I mean, yes, first and foremost between you and God, maybe with others. There might be things in your life you go, yeah, I feel bad, there's no change. What are those things? Own it, confess it in front of the Lord, push it into the light, and then run into the compassion of our loving Father. So we are gonna take some time to take communion together. This is for everyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There are two kind of stations up front, two and back. There's a gluten-free one up here. But maybe take a minute, maybe even in your seat, and just reflect, what do I need to own? Confess it, repent, and then let's take communion. We'll stand and we're gonna worship our Savior together.